From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle, the show brought to you by learning professionals for learning professionals. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is our friend, Dr. Clark Quinn. He's a returning guest to the show. He's a well-known and respected contributor to the learning field, the first recipient of the eLearning Guild's Guildmaster Award. He's spoken internationally and consults to the Fortune 500, government, education, and not-for-profits, He's also a best-selling author in the field. His most recent book is titled Learning Science. It's due out very soon from ATD Press. It's a terrific read. The last time we spoke, Clark, we discussed 21st century learning, and I'm going to encourage listeners to reach back into our archives for that one. But Clark, thank you for joining us again today. Welcome. Thank you, Anthony. A pleasure to be here and to talk learning. Yeah, I'm thrilled and excited to have you. I've been reading through the book, True Confession. I haven't finished it, but I'm deeply into it. Uh, I've made good progress, and I plan to finish it because it really is very helpful to me. The title is simply Learning Science for Instructional Designers from Cognition to Application. But the big, bold print is Learning Science. Clark, why this title? Why, why now? Why did you write this book? Partly because I was asked, right? ATB Press said, we would like to have a book on learning science. Uh, I thought that was good. But I think it's because there's a trend. There's a growing awareness of the need for learning science. I went back and looked at the books that have come out that basically talk about learning science. And I note that they were sparse and few between, and they're coming out faster and faster recently. And I think that's because there's a growing awareness that what's been done under the guise of training and e-learning has not reflected learning science well at all. And people are finally becoming aware of that and caring. And yet, learning science is complex. It's a new field in that sense. Cognitive science in the 80s was created to bring in all these different people talking about thinking, philosophers, linguists, anthropologists, neuroscientists, psychologists, and then as an outgrowth of that in the 90s, these scientists recognized there was a lot of different people looking at learning from different perspectives, whether it's educational psychology or instructional designers or cognitive scientists, again, looking at learning. So they created that umbrella. But it, the results of that research tend to be written in this obscure dialect of English known as academese <laughs> that's designed to be impenetrable. So there's a real need for translation of that research into practical guidelines that are comprehensible. And that's what, what they asked for and what I really felt the field needed was this digest of what is a really good basis to understand learning science, just the right amount, just the right stuff, just as you know, as simple as possible and no simpler. So I think that's why this title emerged as it did, when it did. I like that point that you made in the book about how there is this academies. It is a, a kind of an impenetrable thicket of words that you can't cut through. But you also talk about how our field is blessed with the translators who are the bridge between the scholars and the practitioners. I don't want to say lay people necessarily, but the, the practitioners 
And you actually list some at your site. Some of them I've known, they've been guests on this show and known people at, on the learning circuit at the conferences. And they really are tremendous help to put these concepts into digestible forms. Personally speaking, I'm someone who has to know not just the rules. I'm, I'm not that I don't want to uh, be compliant and follow <laughs> rules, but I find that it goes to my personal motivation when I understand why something and why and how something is to be done a certain way. Why does it work that way? When I got into design, I, it wasn't enough for me. And it's things like graphic design in particular, I needed to understand, well, why do we have these typographic rules? And then when you understand in an example like that, the shapes and letter forms and how that works, then you understand, okay, there's a good reason for these rules. And I'm jumping ahead to other concepts in your book, but this creates models as well, which become mnemonic in themselves. So uh, really enjoying that aspect of the book that I'm describing. But getting back to the practitioner, for the working instructional designer, why is learning science important for them? Well, you hinted at it. I do want to make it clear. There's The learning science writing isn't deliberately obtuse. It just ends up being that way because they need to be very precise about a great number of details. And to analyze it, you really have to understand the fine nuances of what makes a appropriate subject and an appropriate statistical method and appropriate design. So it's worthwhile to be able to read it, but it shouldn't be expected of everybody. So there's a reason to have the, these translations and translators, and you should follow them and pay attention to them and hire them um, and uh, take advantage of, of what they do. The reason to follow learning science is what you suggested, though. There are rules about instructional design, and if you follow them by rote, but they end up having gaps. They can't prescribe for every situation. If you don't understand what those rules are based on, you're not going to be able to make good inferences in the interstitial places. And you don't want to just have to create and test everything every time because that's not efficient. So the ability to make inferences based upon the underlying foundations gives you several forms of power. One is to make those, to fill in those gaps. The other one is to continue to track the development of the field. Learning science isn't static. We've got really good rules, but it is continuing to evolve and you want to be able to evolve along with it. And really importantly, I think, is the ability to resist suggestions and preferences by people who don't understand learning who are going to ask for X, Y, and Z, and those aren't good ideas. And you need to be able to explain why. This can include, you know, just, oh, why don't we do more of X? You know, why don't we have more prose here? Why don't we have this cute picture right here? Well, that overloads cognitive load, and we need to keep it minimal. But it also helps you resist some of the snake oil in our industry, learning styles, detention span of a goldfish. There's a whole bunch of things that are pushed out there that are not based on sound science and, in fact, contradict it. And yet people have been swayed by marketing or compelling stories that are appealing and just not relevant. So I think, you know, Having a basis of a solid, comprehensible foundation learning science gives you those abilities to do good design and resist that. I appreciate what you're saying about our industry. It's a wonderful industry, this intersection of learning and design and technology, but it is an industry. 
there is a temptation to sort of come up with the novel way of presenting an idea. And if we can label it and merchandise it, you know, there are pitfalls there. We, we could be selling the snake oil, as you <laughs> more candidly put it. And, and so we see, you know, the over expression of things, everything from, you know, generational theory, over reliance on that. You wrote a whole book about this, right? What is the name of the title where you bust a lot of myths about our industry? Um, that was my previous book with ATD Press, and that's Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions. The subtitle is Debunking Learning Myths and Superstitions. And, you know, they, they had asked for that as well. And I, I do think it's important. There's a lot of stuff going out there. There were 16 myths, five superstitions, and 16 misconceptions to unpack and address. And, you know, that's a significant number. Unfortunately, our industry is not as well evidence-based as it could and should be. We have a lot of people who've been we're good at their job, you know, sales or operations, and then they get made trainers. And then when, you know, 2001 happened and nobody wanted to travel, they said, oh, well, we're going to do an e-learning. You're suddenly an e-learning designer. And that's where the concept of the accidental instructional designer came up, which is not a really good indication for our industry. You know, Cammie uh, Bean wrote a great book addressing that, and it was really needed, but the fact that it's needed, it's a bit of a problem, right? And so, there's been a resistance. Several years ago, three re people I really respect in the industry, Michael Allen, Will Kalheimer, Julie Dirks, and myself, were walking around yet another expo hall and recognizing there's a lot of shiny new stuff, what you were talking about, merchandise, it, right, if you put a label on it. But a fundamentally, not enough had changed underneath. It still didn't reflect what we knew. And so we created, ultimately, the Series E Learning Manifesto, a, a statement about what e good e-learning could and should look like. We identified eight ways in which Series E Learning would be separated from traditional e-learning, backed up by 22 research-based principles by scientists over decades. And that was a statement about what's wrong with the industry. Part of the way to try and help remedy that is to give people a good basis of learning science so they can start doing things on the basis. And in the book, after every section, I have a little, you know, I try and collect the learning that you should take away to apply to what you do. I appreciate the mention of Cami Bean and the accidental designer. There are a lot of people, myself included, who sort of snuck in. I, I tell people I snuck in the back door when nobody was looking. <laughs> and I, I came from more of the discipline of media development and technology. And I found that that gets recontextualized with all these learning principles and the, the learning science that we're talking about today. But this brings me to the idea that your book is very inclusive. It says that it's for instructional designers, but I think it's for more than just instructional designers. Am I right? Yes. And I am regretting that I allowed it to be titled Learning Science for Instructional Designers. In retrospect, I think I would have titled it Learning Science for Instructional Design, because there are a lot more people who do actually design learning experiences than just instructional designers. When you're coaching, you should be providing, you know, stretch assignments and feedback aligned with learning science. So coaching and mentoring and managers who are doing coaching and mentoring roles should have this, but also, you know, teachers or instructional designers, even parents. Uh, should be scaffolding what their kids are learning, but you know, in pre five, it's a little bit different developmentally than than for adults. Although andragogy is really not uh, 
an important thing. If you look at what Malcolm Knowles proposed is important for learning in andragogy, it actually is true for pretty much all learners. Yes. And even part of the story, and it's in the book, is on meta-learning or learning to learn, becomes applicable to everyone because we're facing increasing change. What a heck of a year the last year we've had, right? Um, That was a lot to cope with. If you're an effective learner and self-learner, you can be better prepared and better able to accommodate, learn how to change and then change. So in some sense, all of us need to be self-learning designers. That's right. I'm a strong believer that the best education is self-education. So, you know, we learn these principles, but you touch on this in the book about how there's so much learning that has to be done. You you know, you can't just tell people about football. They have to get in there and play football to learn it. Is that what you were touching upon? Well, indeed. That's an extension of what I was touching on. I was saying that everybody needs to understand what good learning is. And good learning, to your point, is indeed practice. You have to apply it. Giving people a bunch of information and expecting that to lead to change of behavior isn't a reasonable assumption. In cognitive science, we call it inert knowledge. You'll study it and you'll pass a test on it and you'll go out in the real world and it won't even be activated because you've never used it in context. And it turns out for our cognitive architecture reasons, contextual practice is really the best support for achieving our learning goals. And we have two learning goals, retention over time until it's needed and transfer to all appropriate situations and no inappropriate situations. And the way you get retention and transfer is by practice. And it has to be spaced. We now understand the large number of factors that are important in practice. It's got to be the right practice for where you are now, deliberate practice with desirable difficulty, if Robert Bjork calls it. And then it needs to be spaced and reactivated because you can only do so much strengthening in any one day. So our event model of learning is kind of broken. And when we look at what really works, the most important element is not the content, it's not the bullet points, it's not what you're told, it's what you do. Yeah, and you go in detail in the book about how we learn in the context of an environment And you you sort of diagram it, how we perceive our world. I'm going to really abuse the explanation of this, but it, it goes into working memory and we're doing things to elaborate and retrieve it. And this becomes a part of long-term memory. Maybe you can help put a, a more correct description on that for me. Right. You know, what we attend to gets into working memory. For that to get into long-term memory, we need to elaborate it and connect it to our experience, which that processing strengthens the relationships and increases the likelihood it will get activated. And then we separately have to practice retrieving it again in a context and use it in the way we will need to use it outside the learning experience. We need to very carefully identify what people need to be able to do after the learning experience and then bring that into the learning experience. And yes, exactly. It's that Our core information processing cycle, just thinking is to what comes in from context and what we already know interacts together to create our current assessment of the situation. And this has become quite clear through things like Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, how we're very much affected by context. And we need to understand this. And then we consciously choose what to do unless we've automated it. And some things we do want to automate. And that takes a lot of practice to make sure that, boom, we just do things. You think of fields like aviation, aerospace, 
you want your pilot reacting before they think, because by the time they've thought it through and made a decision, it's too late. So they do incredibly deep practice in simulations for situations I hope never to face. But this is because, you know, it's important and lives are on the line. And even when it's not, deciding what we should have automated so our brains are free to spend the time with our conscious memory making the right decisions is critical to, to getting this right. Yeah, and you talk about that as well. You talk about the senses, how we, we perhaps there's more than five senses, and how things get into muscle memory, whether muscle memory is a misnomer or not. I think that speaks to that sort of immediate reflex reaction through deep training and practice and being in simulations and other situations where you know what to do at the moment of application. Now, you, you do get into the brain science, and you talk about how our brain's neural activity impact our learning. And I, I know we're treading a line there. We just talked about an industry that loves its buzzwords and slaps stickers on things. So we hear a lot about neural this and neural that. So without abusing the word neural, tell us, though, about how our brains do that. So what we're thinking of consciously is coming from activations across massive networks and neurons. And learning is strengthening the relationships between certain aspects of those patterns. So at that level, learning is neural. However, you don't want to trigger those patterns by some sort of neural implant. You'd have to be able to access pretty much all of the neurons in your brain. And that is an incredibly invasive, invasive thing to do. I wouldn't trust anybody to do that to not also happen to decide to bake in, you know, a certain preference for their product into what they're doing in my brain. So, and it turns out the way we activate those patterns in conjunction so that they get strengthened is through things like words and images. That's at the cognitive level. And our conscious thinking is at the cognitive level. So while it's running on a neural engine, talking about neuroscience actually isn't the useful level to discuss it. And in fact, if you read most articles talking about, oh, we're doing neural learning and neural leadership, their prescriptions of what to do are actually things that have emerged from cognitive science research long before we were doing the fMRI studies and finding what's happening underneath. Eventually, we'll begin to start seeing it. I mean, we're seeing really incredible and interesting results, but they have not yet changed in any fundamental way what our prescriptions have been for quite a while. So while, yes, it's a neural engine, it's sort of, you don't think about petrol going into your cylinder through a fuel injector and the spark coming from your electronic ignition when you're thinking about pushing the accelerator and the car going faster. It's that sort of analogy that helps us understand the neural level is that fueling spark. And yet we want to be thinking at the level of, let's, shall we accelerate or shall we decelerate? Shall we put on the brakes? That's kind of the way to think about it. There's the neural level, there's also the cognitive level, and you take pains to distinguish those, I think. Well, yes, the neural level is the bottom level. The next level up is the cognitive, and on top of that, we get the social and cultural levels. While we are running on a neural architecture, the useful prescriptions for what to do come from the way we cons consider our cognitive architecture at the, that level. And so our best prescriptions for design come from the research that's done under the rubric of cognitive psychology and cognitive science, not the neuroscience level. And anybody telling you to the contrary is probably trying to sell you something. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. 
So there's what we think about as formal instruction or traditional learning. Do you go beyond that in any important ways with this book? Yes. Um, our original sort of cognitive model and um, realized that instructional design started with sort of behavioral psychology and then as cognitive psychology, um, the cognitive revolution took hold, instructional design started accommodating that. But that model was still that our brains are formal, logical reasoners. And the sort of post-cognitive revolution recognized that there's a lot of evidence that that's not true. Um, you can look at behavioral economics type of results that have uh, been proselytized in uh, you know, free economics books like that, or in Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, where we recognize we have a lot of non-logical behaviors that we need to accommodate. And so our learning design has to accommodate that as well. We need to recognize. So one of the things is, as I mentioned, how much context interacts with what we know in our head and changes it and alters it. So we need to make sure that when we design learning for different contexts, we have made it robust in the face of the different ways in which they might be encountered. We also found out that our learning is, our, our thinking is distributed. It's not all in our head. It's with the tools in the world. We use spreadsheets to represent complex data that we can't keep in mind all at one time. And diagrams represent relationships. And we use these tools as we think and alone and together. And so our learning design should recognize and, in fact, should increasingly put information in the world when we can. We should put as much as support in the world because it's really hard to reliably get it in our head. It takes, I've already mentioned, the amount of practice it takes. So And cognitive load. And cognitive load. We have bandwidth limitations on what can get into our head. And we, the reason we automate a lot of stuff is so that then it can be quick and it's not causing a, you know, essentially a roadblock in our thinking so that we can, we increase cognitive load by automating things so that they can come to come up as one small chunk in our working memory, which has limited capacity. So yes, there are a lot of results that are that imply. Plus, I go beyond just the cognitive side because the emotional side is also important. We're recognizing that we remember things better when they're tied to emotional events. How do we accommodate that? How do we make our learning more meaningful? As an area I'm pushing now is my subsequent initiative, but I have a chapter on emotion and talk about what makes learning stick better from that emotional aspect. And then there's also the metacognitive aspect about learning to learn. And not only should we internalize that ourselves, but we should be facilitating our learners learning to learn. Because that will arguably, when I was working with the late, great Jay Cross, he argued that it might be the best investment an organization can make is to help their learners become more effective learners. Yes, yes. By the way, just a, a sort of an oddball angle, but you mentioned Jay Cross, and we were talking before we hit the record button. Um, I'm a big fan and grateful for Jay Cross's quote that conversation is the most important learning technology ever invented, which is why I really enjoy what we're doing here. I, th I think this illusion where people are the fly on the wall of a conversation and how learning can occur in the human call and response of conversation is very, very effective. In your answer, though, just speaking to what you just said, I like that idea of how we, we use the tools. We have kind of an external brain that we create. I'm, I'm like an Evernote junkie. I'm always taking notes. 
I take photos, uh, but you know, that combination of text and photos and note taking and having it handy to reference really reduces cognitive load for me. A nice expression that I always remembered came from an unlikely source. It wasn't a learning person per se, but if you remember that popular productivity book called Getting Things Done by David Allen, which was making the rounds, oh, 15 years ago at this point, he suggests that for us to be productive, he he makes this point, it's kind of this Zen-like expression. He talks about mind like water and this idea that if you can document the things that you need to get done, you put them in list, you put them in contexts that are appropriate to where your work has to get done, then your mind can relax because it knows that you're not going to forget anything. You're not uptight trying to hold it in your short-term memory, right? Uh, it's there. It'll be there. And you again, you've reduced that cognitive load and your performance can increase when you go to do it. Really like it. And it's, it's, it speaks to another point that I love. Um, it's Julie Dirksen, who is a great example of this, about how we really have to go to other wells than you know, our own industry and, and kind of bring back great concepts and ideas to help this thing that we call learning and development to evolve. I absolutely agree. And there's a variety of ways. I, my, the graduate student lab I came through was focusing on interface design. Uh, my, you know, designing for how our, we think and my twist on it was designing for how we learn. But that they were very eclectic and um, they were looking at inspirations for design in the user-centered system design book. They were looking at inspirations from architecture. Uh, Chris Hooper was looking at that and Brenda Laura was looking at theater and a lot of people were looking at games. In fact, a lot of the UX stuff had been triggered by the excitement people had about an old game called Bill Budge's pinball construction set. And People were making bad pinball games. I mean, it's actually difficult to make a good pinball game, but they were loving the experience. And it turns out it was really the first drag and drop interface that the consumers ever saw that now is so familiar, but it was the first time running on the old Apple IIs. But the fact that people were enjoying the experience really excited these scientists interested in interface design going, how could something that doesn't let them do good still be engaging? And that really triggered it. And so I've looked at games and fiction and theater. And I had a PhD student who looked at live action role-playing games, looking at inspiration for what makes experiences engaging. And I mentioned when I looked at learning that I was looking at, you know, behavioral and cognitive and social and, and machine learning. It's that eclectic approach that helps you synthesize something that is richer than it would be if you were looking at one narrow field. And the notion of pushing information out, I make diagrams as a way to help me understand things. And I remember when I, I first got a Palm Pilot, I deliberately pushed it to see how much I could use it to make me more effective. All the apps, what could I do that would make me more effective? And it's that sort of mindset of experimentation and pushing boundaries and trying things is actually an interesting part of learning that goes beyond formal learning. So one of the things I believe strongly, and I do talk about in the book, is when we're doing research, when we're doing design, when we're doing troubleshooting, all those activities, we don't know the answer when we start. So they are learning situations too. However, there is no expert who can give us the answer. So it's not instruction, but our learning, 
architecture is still comes into play. And so we should be optimizing our practices in these instances so that they still best align with what we know about how our brains learn best. And so the, the point is that the value of understanding learning science goes beyond just instruction to all our practices about trying to improve the human condition. Continual innovation is informal learning. It really is. And I'm just thinking about how I value the, my, my own personal approach is that I'm a kind of a generalist and I, I f- just find that it's very important to look far and wide and time and time again, I find that there are things that from the unlikeliest sources, you can bring it back and make the connection and come at old stubborn problems at odd angles. And you kind of get the eureka moment that way. We need our specialists, but the you know it, it's good to try to be a bit of a generalist as well. There has is a book recently that my colleague Harold Jarkey pointed uh, me to, which is about being a neo generalist. The new generalist is really the book argues is more valuable than the specialty um, because just what you said. You, as we're adapting to new things, we never know what useful models are going to be relevant, and I've made sort of a habit of collecting new mental models. In fact, Karan uh, Pradam and his colleague down in Australia are creating a site just that's a collection of mental models that you can learn about so that you have this greater repertoire of tools to go out and apply to situations to do problem-solving research and design. I totally agree. Now, I, I feel that you've, you're really trying to provide us a practical tool. This is not just mere theory for us to um, scratch our intellectual itch. You want practitioners to be able to use this. What is your feeling about the book? How, how does this become guidance for us to apply learning science? Well, two things. First of all, I really tried to boil it down to a comprehensible and useful set of models that you can use to understand how we think. And after each section, as I mentioned, I've tried to collect the practical implications of the learning. So there's a bunch of them collected through the book, and then they're aggregated at the end to look through. I'm not interested in writing a theoretical treatise. I used to be an academic, but been there, done that. This <laughs> but I recognized what I really wanted to give people was a, a practical handbook that they could consume and keep for reference, but that would give them just enough understanding to be useful without overloading it with any unnecessary concepts. Yeah, and I think you've succeeded in that because it gives you enough to give you the foundation and also point you in the direction to dig deeper so that you can you can you can go deeper in understanding what's behind the learning science, how to understand how learning works. But you're also giving us the tools, again, going back to that analogy of let's not get too caught up in how the pistons fire. Let's use the brake pedal and the accelerator, and we can we can get somewhere <laughs> to make the most of that metaphor. So, yes, yeah, a very helpful book. I think this is due out. But when is the release date for this, Clark? Uh, well, I'm not sure when people will be hearing this, but... For our conversation, it's next week. It's April 13th is the official release date. I have seen pictures of a few people already getting their ship from Amazon, but apparently they weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> so uh, starting uh, April 13th, they sh- it should be available in print and in ebook. Um, Outstanding. 
Well, I'll give them two days to learn how to do their taxes. So excellent timing. <laughs> and uh, Clark, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. My guest has been Dr. Clark Quinn, author of Learning Science for Instructional Designers. Again, that's from ATD Press. You can find it at an Amazon.com near you or your favorite bookstore if you can get into one of them these days. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, encourage people to learn the learning science and apply it and let's improve our practices as a profession. Outstanding. Thank you again, Clark. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.